The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Good afternoon, everybody. I hope you guys are having a good time designing the problem. The deadline is very close. It's tomorrow. And I, and, and I hope you guys are ready with your presentations and everything. Well, this is our last lecture for the Caltech Space Challenge public series, uh, sponsored by Lockheed Martin. And our speaker this evening is uh, Dr. Gerhard Schwimm, who is the mission manager for the Rosetta mission by European Space Agency. Please welcome Dr. Gerhard Schwimm. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. And I also want to thank uh, the organizers here for the invitation and giving me the opportunity to talk about Rosetta. And you might find that perhaps a little bit strange, but I thought I'd take also the opportunity to give you a little bit overview uh, how this thing came programmatically about. And uh, I don't know if that, uh, I hope it doesn't depress you, but it uh, shows that there, besides technology and besides all these things, there are also a few programmatic issues usually with these missions. And I have given it also a strange title, The Making of Rosetta, because we started to design a mission that was a comet nucleus sample return. And uh, due to a few factors which were out of our influence, had only little to do with the, the technology challenge, because people at that time, and that we started, and you'll see it, in 85 with this one, that was before we went to uh, Comet Halley. And uh, people so, uh, thought we were crazy, but uh, OK. Sometimes you have to be crazy to start something, and I will give you a brief overview how <coughs> this all started. And the outline of my talk is I give you an introduction and background, uh, very briefly on the scientific objectives, the orbit, how to get, we get to a comet, spacecraft and payload, and a little bit on the Philae lander, and then I show you also some results also just to demonstrate that the thing worked, and works so far. Right now, we are, you see we are in the hibernation phase. Give you some background. It's perhaps a little bit crowded. This, you know, in, in the early 80s, there was a lot, were a lot of studies performed in the US, in Europe, and as you uh, learned earlier this uh, today, also the Japanese looked in uh, missions to primitive bodies in 84. But we had in beginning 80, we had an ESA-NASA primitive body science study group, PBSSG it was uh, called, and that should uh, have advised both agencies on the scientific priorities for a mission to study primitive bodies. And that was basically to provide science priorities. I think one has to stress it. They didn't have to consider anything programmatically, how this mission would fit in the overall program of both agencies, just to look into it. And this was at a time when we were in Europe heavily busy with the preparing uh, the Kyoto mission to <coughs> fly by or to encounter Comet uh, Halley in 1986. And, uh, and that grew out, perhaps, at uh, just end of the 17th. NASA had very ambitious plans on a, it was, was a temple, uh, temple rendezvous and a Halley intercept mission. That was a, a joint mission between uh, ESA and NASA, it should have been. And this because it was so expensive, uh, didn't come about. So this was a f uh, really a big, a big study group team working on this one. And I had the pleasure uh, at that time, and that was uh, when I was a graduate student, to also attend some of these uh, meetings. Then in uh, December 84, this PBSSG recommended that a comet nucleus sample return should have the highest priority. They didn't look if that was technically feasible, all these things. And uh, then everybody was happy and they stopped their work. So uh, we, <laughs> they, the, because they found an agreement, that was the highest scientific priority. That was their uh, terms of reference to just give the science advice. And uh, now in uh, 85, ESA, for the first time, uh, introduced a long-term program for the, in, in the science program. And uh, the long-term program should cover basically 10, 15 years, and then sh should have a whole sequence of missions and it should work around uh, the cornerstone missions. These were really missions that would advance our science uh, considerably, should have been landmarks. So we had four cornerstones, and then we had what we called medium-sized missions, and then we had small missions. It turned out that the small missions 
uh, we never could do, so we had uh, we concentrated on the medium-sized missions and the and on the cornerstones. And uh, the community in Europe, the planetary community, was in this basically in the infancy. We had meetings where we said, "What can we do in Europe to to get planetary space <coughs> science, planetary science off the ground?" Because NASA had, you know, had the vo successful Voyager mission, and at that time we got then uh, uh, Cassini Horens. Uh, Studied, so they wanted to have a comet nucleosome return mission, and that was uh, the first meeting of or the meeting when this was prepared was in May uh, 1985. <clears throat> that was just a couple of months after I had joined the agency, and I had the uh, the good luck that I could uh, become the so to say the guy who knew a little bit about dust and comets, and they took me to this meeting and then uh, made me the study scientist at that time, and uh, we started to study. Comet Nucleosome return together with our uh, colleagues from NASA. But uh, basically, two years later, NASA uh, dropped out because of uh, financial reasons. They gave Cassini the highest priority. And at that time, Cassini was also uh, basically a family. You had this Mariner Mark II spacecraft. Some of the, our older colleagues might recall that. Uh, and there was a Cassini mission, and there, there was also what was called CRAF. The Comet Rendezvous Asteroid Flyby Mission, and that's exactly what we are doing with, Ros uh, with Rosetta now. You will see that, and that was also on their books. But they dropped the Craft mission and went on with Cassini. And uh, there was a lot of things going on at that time. We in Europe we developed uh, solar electric propulsion, and in the States they developed uh, solar electric propulsion and. Uh, at that time, we studied also multiple asteroid flybys, which were linked to solar electric propulsion. As the U.S. didn't go along, there was no competitor. And as you see, that's usually we had, uh, you know, if there's no competitor, there's also no interest to develop something. So therefore, in Europe, there was also not a big interest to, to develop uh, solar electric propulsion. And uh, we had to wait for SMART-1, our technology mission to the moon, to get SEP. And, uh, but that had also some influence on uh, the comet nucleus return because we had to do the mission uh, very, uh, in, so to say, with uh, chemical uh, propulsion, which you will see has uh, quite some impact. And you saw, I think, in your studies as well that there's a, you know, also in the mission profile, there's a big difference between uh, solar electric propulsion and uh, ballistic missions. And uh, uh, this had, uh, right in the beginning, had quite severe impacts on what we uh, could do. And, uh, you know, as we started in 85, I was study scientist for the mission in 85. We have launched in 2004, so you, need, you know what you need here. It's patience for these missions, and you, you have to really have to know what you want to do and that you have an interesting project uh, that keeps you busy. Uh, we were approved in, in early... <coughs> or in the end of the 80s as a contender for the cornerstone number three or number four. And uh, so we looked into the science objectives for the mission. And this is the usual thing, and I, what I saw this afternoon, you do the same. You discuss the requirements for this mission. So we discussed at that time the sample requirements. You know, the, you have a big discussion. What sample you want to bring back to the Earth? And uh, at that time, uh, one... Professor Jerry Wasserberg here from Caltech, he said, guys, if you want to do a mission like this, you have to bring back a couple of kilograms because you want to convince everybody in the world that it's worthwhile and you have to set something to distribute to your science colleagues and not only bring a few milligrams. In the meantime, our analysis tools are so much better that a couple of grams are already enough to distribute them. At that time, he said you need kilograms. The other thing, what was a long discussion at that time, was the temperature of the samples. You know, comets are cold objects. They are, therefore, it was quite clear we want to take the sample at the local temperature, which is around 100, 110 Kelvin, and we have to bring it back at 110 Kelvin. So we had to do a lot of scientific <coughs> and technology studies, how you can sample uh, at these low temperatures and how you can store such a sample uh, for the return lag and the sample uh, handling. And then we looked in the sample analysis and also in the planetary protection requirements. And in addition, what you need for all these missions, if you go to an object that you don't know very well and comets still, with, even with the huge telescopes we have in the meantime, 
from ground-based observations, you learn a lot, but not enough when you go there. So, but you want to determine the orbit quite well, and you want to know as much as you can learn before you start a mission. So we had also defined a good ground-based observation program. I put that here just to see that there are a number of things that you, from the science side, you, you have to uh, look into before you start a mission that has to meet uh, some scientific objectives. And uh, there are a lot of drivers for such a mission, and therefore it's also very, you have to very carefully look into these things. You know, as I said, the size of the samples. In the, the, the NASA studies years later, when they had a comet nuclear sample return, they wanted to have half a kilogram. You know, our, at that time they said 10 kilogram is the minimum. 100 Kelvin is what is the minimum, and you have to store it like this. In the meantime, also this has been relaxed, but people, and it's not only science that puts that, if there are technology challenges which are basically translated into uh, financial requirements, then you might also reconsider a few things. In parallel, what we did at this time, we, and, and I saw that on uh, uh, Tuesday morning here, you know, for the mission of ten, uh, opportunities, you have to look in the potential targets, because when you start very early with such a mission, you don't know what is your launch date. So you have to see for the launch dates that m might be possible. You have to have a target for each of the launch dates, or if you have one target, you have to see that you can define a launch date and that you can also uh, <coughs> define potential backups for, to, to get to the same uh, object. In our case, what was the driving, so to say, parameter that we had, that was the mass that we could or had to deliver at the comet. This was basically, this was a, the prime figure. And then we have to see, can we develop a system that brings 100 kilo, 200 kilos, it depends how the same return looks like, uh, <coughs> to the comet. It, it was actually, it was a, the, the return canister was about uh, 200 kilos, but the whole mission to, or the, whole <coughs> the mass of the spacecraft with the same return was about uh, one and a half tons. But uh, the other thing is, as we didn't get the solar electric propulsion system, we had to look into low intensity, low temperature solar arrays. That was the first time that we looked into it, that we can go with solar, uh, <coughs> solar power uh, to a distance of about five to six uh, AU heliocentric distance. And this development has been very important, what we did here, because it's uh, use now, sim I think, the similar cells for Juno, and uh, it also uh, makes us, at least for some of the classes of mission, independent from RTGs. And this is another background, because in Europe we don't have RTGs. At that time, we couldn't build them. Uh, NASA would only launch RTGs from the US. They would not give them away. So we had to be independent in and uh, started on uh, this uh, development of the special solar arrays. Uh, in the meantime, in Europe, there are some uh, studies uh, just have been started to get also RTGs in Europe that also will help us to enlarge our horizon for missions. Uh, okay, then there was this drilling at, in ice at low temperatures. Nobody had done that. Also, comets are low density, and to drill in low density ice at 100 Kelvin, it's very difficult to imagine how you do it. We, we were na very naive, you know, one, one meter drill, and then you just get it. When uh, talking to experts on this one, they said, oh, you have to be very careful. You know, it's not like you drill a hole in the wall because everybody believes he has his uh, power drill and can do it. This is totally different if you want to take a sample. And uh, we did a lot of studies on this one. And uh, this also is now feeding back into some of the missions that go to Mars, like the ExoMars mission, the NASA ESA uh, rover that should be built with a drill. And if you look at the design of the drill we did uh, 20 years ago, basically, or, and what's done now, this, uh, it's also the same company now building this drill. So it got tight somewhere and they're keeping the samples. Okay, we, and the other thing was that we had to have a very long lifetime for the mission, so we had to get a 12 plus years lifetime for the spacecraft and the subsystems if you want to go to the comet and back. At that time, that was our life. <coughs> uh, this is the things we already studied for the uh, comet nuclear sample return. When it turned out that NASA would not go with us, we were 
reconsidering it. We had a very brief study phase, a little bit longer than the one week you have for your mission, but then we had to come up with an alternative, and we came up with this comet with this rendezvous mission uh, with a lander, and uh, and that was a mission we proposed, and that was then also accepted. But uh, we could use a lot of this stuff we have learned there, especially for lifetime of the spacecraft and all these things we could use there. And you see I put in here heritage for telecom spacecraft. This is exact, usually one of the things if you have uh, technology issues, you look if there is heritage from other missions that you can use because that saves you a lot of development time, Bo uh, boosts up your uh, TRL and uh, also saves you a lot of money. And uh, you see, we had to forget the solar electric propulsion and really do the whole thing uh, ballistically with chemical propulsion. And this is also something that, uh, which has quite some influence on the mission. Let me just go briefly to the scientific objectives. And basically, this is, I just show you the history of the solar system material where it comes from, you know, basically the creation at the big bun of hydrogen and helium, and then you go from the hydrogen to the heavy elements, and from these elements to go to, you go to the dust, and there you have a whole circle. The dust goes through several uh, stages, and then at a certain time you come to the pre-solar nebula, out of which our planets evolve, and what we have today, the objects that are accessible to us and we can study from close, it's, okay, we are sitting on the Earth, we, have, we can remotely see, so to say, the central object and study it, the sun. We can uh, study our close neighbors, the planets in the system, very close. We can study very close by Mars. We studied Venus uh, with a lot of missions from uh, our <coughs> colleagues here from NASA and a few from ESA and the Russians have been involved in But the most primitive objects that uh, so to say, remain from the whole process are the comets. And that is really why we are interested in comets. Comets are, in our understanding, and that has been proven with the missions to Comet, uh, Comet Halley, that they are obviously the most primitive objects in the solar system that, we, that are accessible to us. And what we want to understand is, by studying comets, we want to understand, so to say, how the solar system evolved, how it looked like in the pre-solar or pre-planetary nebula that we have over there. And uh, you have the asteroids, I left them out in between. The asteroids are already more processed, they are differentiated. If you want to really go to the origin, you have to go to comets. And that is uh, the whole reason that we want to uh, study comets, really to look back into the infancy of our planetary system. This is very briefly, very short, you know, I could talk about this much longer. Uh, the first time when we did that, when uh, the opportunity was, uh, so to say, captured by ESA uh, was <coughs> for the comet uh, Halley encounter. And we were joined at that time by the Russians who converted two of their Venus probes into Vega probes, Venus, and uh, uh, this GA st uh, stands for Halley, or they don't have an H, therefore you have a G in there. And uh, uh, the Japanese uh, also uh, participated with Susei and Sakigaka. And uh, it was also the first great international collaboration for such a fleet of missions. We had an interagency consultative group. Uh, our American colleagues at that time, they thought it was not worthwhile to have these uh, very short flybys. You would not learn anything. So they stayed out till they realized that uh, things might work out totally differently, that you would have a great, so to say, science return. Then uh, they, cho uh, they joined us in Kyoto. They, we had uh, co-eyes uh, from the US, and uh, the US at that time was really implementing the International Heliwatch, uh, a very uh, <clears throat> detailed and, and a very grand ground-based observation program, which helped really to, to understand what we saw at Halley in the great context. And, uh, you know, what we learned, this is the best image that we got at that time, the 
Flyby distance was the close to 600 uh, kilometers, and that was the closest uh, approach to a comet nucleus for about uh, 15 years or so uh, until Stardust had the Will 2 flyby. Or we <coughs> came with Crick uh, Scallop uh, six years later for the Kyoto extended missions, also very close, but we didn't get any images because the camera was destroyed during the heli flyby. But what uh, seems, uh, so to say, uh, not a big deal is that we found out that comets have a solid nucleus. At that time, you still had this gravel bank model or sand bank model for comets. And uh, we, we realized and we could also determine uh, by direct in-situ measurements that the uh, nucleus consists of ice, ices and dust and uh, that the material is really emitted by solar radiation in jets. This was one of the uh, very important discoveries, basically, that you had these jets and that the comet nucleus was active in only in, in, in certain spots, not active all over the surface. And uh, it was also the first image we ever got from a comet nucleus, and that uh, comet nucleus was small. As usually say it's, uh, we say a few kilometers. Halley was a big one, 16 kilometers long, and for those, as I'm from Europe, but uh, so they have been, and also from Europe, and have been in Italy. If you look at Capri out of a plane or something, it's about the same size. So it's, it's fairly big. Even 16 kilometers sounds not a big, but it's a big object. Uh, and this was, so to say, the, the first so approach movie that we got from such a primitive object that was taken by the camera till the camera was dis uh, destroyed. And that was about uh, at a distance of 2,500 uh, kilometers. <coughs> or, yeah, two and a half. This, I think it's, uh, oh, perhaps it was 1,500. We, we, we are not discussing on this one, but I thought it was a little bit before that we got uh, the last image. But this uh, basically was the big results. It was, uh, for us, it was, this was an emotional uh, also <coughs> moment when we got this movie after the, uh, the evening of the flybys. And those who have been in Europe at that time and can remember it, it was not so straightforward, the, <laughs> the outrage we made and what you could see in the night of the flyby. So it took about a couple of hours till we got the first nice images. And uh, for those who... The, it didn't help us because uh, the British Prime Minister, Mrs. Thatcher, was not impressed when she saw the first image, which looked like a, what you say, like an egg sunny side up because they didn't get all the details out and they just had a raw image. And she was, and this is true, she said, you know, for such a thing you spend so much money. And it doesn't help for science if you get something like this. So, you know, outreach and to get your results over is very, very important. And you have to sell your missions. And if you get politicians who don't, un she was a, a chemist, eh? but she, she saw this. She couldn't understand it. Nobody could explain it to her. And for her, it was, uh, it was a disaster. And I can tell you, I drove home the night after the encounter or in the morning at uh, 7 o'clock. And there was uh, uh, somebody on, uh, on the radio discussing the encounter. And the last sentence, he said, you know, now ESA has 76 years to see how they can do it better. Uh, you know, when you hear that after some... <laughs> but it was just that we couldn't because it was, it was the first time we did something like this. We could show it, but we didn't get the results over. But I just, as a, just want to make clear that you have to be careful what you are doing, that you also get it across, because you get the money from the taxpayer. And what you are doing has... They have to be convinced, and they should not see that you waste money and, it's, uh, uh, and they will not be impressed. So what we had to do... Uh, these were the objectives. We, were, we had been selecting our target. And I don't want to go in the whole uh, history because we had uh, uh, selected Comet Virtanen. We wanted to launch in 2003. And uh, unfortunately, a couple of weeks before we should launch, uh, the Ariane 5, which had an, a new main engine, uh, exploded at their first launch. And I can tell you I was sitting there watching the launch in, uh, in Aztec, and we saw all of a sudden that the, the launcher didn't follow the curve. It should have gone. I'd, uh, okay, I don't want to... 
was, was a bad feeling, but it turned out that uh, there was a big problem with Ayana, so they had grounded the mission. Now we were sitting there and we had to go to, had to find out if there was another target. And as therefore I also said, you need your backup uh, solution. We had studied a, a whole range of possible targets. We had most of the, we had the missions there. But then there come the nitty gritty details. Because to reach a comet, and as we have to to use chemical propulsions, we needed the Earth flybys, we needed Mars flybys to get there, to get the orbital energy. We looked into it, now Mars is not a good target, you know, it's better to go to Venus, but the design we had for our Virtan mission was marginal to go to, to go to Venus, because you go closer to the Sun, and then all of a sudden it turned out that our thermal design was not appropriate just to make this 0.1.2 AU closer to the sun that, that we needed to have a Venus flyby. So we had to look into a mission that used uh, a Mars flyby, and that also is, is the reason why we have such a long cruise time, because we uh, launched in March 2004, then we had uh, Earth flyby, we went to, to the Earth twice, then we had the, the Mars flyby to redirect the spacecraft properly for the, uh, for the next uh, Earth flyby to really optimize the Earth flyby. Uh, we went out through the asteroid belt and had our first science highlight. This was a flyby of asteroid Steins in September 2008, back to the Earth, and then we finally were on our trajectory that would bring us out in uh, <coughs> close to Jupiter's orbit. And uh, then we had another flyby of, uh, of an asteroid, Lutetia, and you saw Lutetia this, uh, mo uh, this morning on an image in July 2010. And uh, we then made our first big uh, deep space maneuver to synchronize the orbit of uh, Rosetta with the orbit of the comet. And uh, that was done earlier this year with some small hiccups. And then what we did we had to put the spacecraft into hibernation because the power level we have, even if we have the big solar arrays, it's not enough if something would happen to the spacecraft, if it would go in the safe mode, that we would get it out of the safe mode. So when we designed the mission, uh, we looked into this and uh, we thought that the, the best solution would be to put the spacecraft into hibernation for 31 months and then to wake it up again on the 20th of January 2014 at 10 o'clock. That's where the alarm clock is set on board and we then <laughs> die. Uh, and just leave it now in hibernation and it goes along this trajectory. So we have no contact to the spacecraft. We will not hear anything from the spacecraft. It gives us the time that we quietly can prepare the <coughs> rendezvous with Churyumov Garasimenko, our target comet and then start to uh, the science operations at the nucleus. And we still have to do quite some work to prepare that. For financial reasons, we have pushed this development now into the time of the hibernation, not to be forced to keep a big team going for such a long time. And you see the big maneuvers uh, where <coughs> January 2011, and then we will have another big rendezvous maneuver, the number two, in 2014, where we burn most of the fuel. You see that uh, together this is uh, nearly 1,600 meters per second. So this is uh, where we also get rid of a lot of mass from the spacecraft. This is how we get there. You know, if you have a, a launcher, we know, and uh, with a Ariane 5 is fairly big, but still you can't get directly to a comet nucleus, so we have to use the nature's, the gravity assist to get there. As, as I said, we need the tech, uh, or we use the technology which is uh, based to a large extent on uh, experience from uh, telecommunication spacecraft, and if you have some idea how a telecom spacecraft looks like, at least from uh, the elements they have on there, so this is... Uh, there's a lot of things coming from there. And this is just an exploded view with the main features we have there. Uh, we have a, a huge uh, propellant tank. We have two uh, 
thanks for pressurization of the propellant tank because we do repressurization after we burn a large amount of the, uh, of the fuel. And uh, we have for the spacecraft, for these maneuvers, not big thrusters, main thrusters. We do all uh, with small 10 newton thrusters. So we have 24 of these small 10 newton thrusters for the big maneuvers. Therefore, these maneuvers go over days. We can't just have a big engine to do it. We thought it's less risky to go with these thrusters, and we have redundant. So we, have, we need 12, basically, but we have 24 on board. We have a big solid-state mass memory, which was a new development at that time. And uh, we have uh, a huge high-gain antenna to, to keep the communication with Earth. It's uh, larger in diameter than 2 meters. And we have the huge solar arrays. And you will see that these were... <coughs> And uh, the solar arrays are, uh, so to say, have one degree of freedom. The antenna has two. That gives us, so to say, three degrees of freedom at the comet. So we can basically put, uh, get to all attitudes. And what is one thing one has to keep in mind is that we have the, on the upper platform, we have all the instruments. So the, the instruments are body fixed there, which gives you some special requirements for uh, Basically, when you do the science, because you have to optimize together with the instruments as they look all in the same direction, okay, that uh, you see that you can do this, this science and you can fulfill all the requirements. But the, the prime idea was that uh, most, of the, most of the time we want to look down on the comet uh, anyhow, so it, uh, it's good enough to get these instruments on the platform. Uh, we put there the navigation camera because that was, is provided by the agency. There is a redundant system for navigation. We can uh, also navigate autonomously. We have uh, this capability on board because the, <coughs> we, as we go far away from the Earth up to 6 AU, and uh, 1 AU is 8 minutes, so you know how long the round trip light time is. So it, uh, it's, you, can't, you, you have to have some on board autonomy to be sure that the spacecraft uh, can survive. Here, just the properties we have. We have the main structure is about 3 by 2 by 2 meters. Uh, the solar arrays are from tip to tip 32 meters. And as uh, my colleague from uh, ISA said this morning, the spacecraft, his spacecraft, uh, Hayabusa, would have fitted here. But just for us, the 1 to 4 model has some problem because it's uh, 8 meters wide, the solar arrays for this model. So you need quite some stage to put it on. The total mass at launch uh, put here it's, uh, was ex actually was 3,003 kilograms, and out of this was 1,700 uh, kilograms fuel. The science payload we have uh, is 165 kilograms, and then we have a lander, which by itself is 100 kilograms. The solar array output, and uh, this is, <coughs> and I just put the figures in where it's important for us, at 3.4 U, this is a nominal distance, heliocentric distance where you can do science, it's 850 watt, and at 5.25 U, it's still around 400 watts. And uh, this is uh, not enough to get the spacecraft out of a safe mode. We could operate the spacecraft and uh, could communicate, but if something happens and, this, and if the spacecraft goes in the safe mode, it turns, so to say, the solar rays towards the sun, that it gets, uh, so to say, maximum power. But uh, then we need uh, close to 500 watts, and therefore we decided to put it what we call rotisserie mode, it just, uh, it's spun up, which is the, uh, so to say, the most uh, stable uh, <coughs> way to, to run it and then just leave it 30, uh, 31 months there. So as I said, we have 24 bipropellant 10 Newton thrusters and we have an operational lifetime of 12 years. Uh, this is just an image and I have to rush to on, which shows all the, the instruments uh, on top, this and on the side, and this is one of the special features we have. We have a lander that will then land on the comet nucleus, and all instruments are on top. Uh, and I just show this one, which shows you what we have. We have a <coughs> what you need is a is a camera system that's Osiris with a narrow angle, wide angle camera. We have a UV spectrometer. We have a infrared thermal <coughs> imaging mapping spectrometer. We have a couple of dust instruments just to, for the dust environment. We have a dust mass spectrometer, and we have uh, also 
a gas mass spectrometer, which is basically three sensors. It's a huge system, three sensors in total of about 40 kilograms we have for this one. We have a plasma package that gives us the environment and, uh, and also Miro, which is a microwave instrument. And we have four PIs, and I don't want to go in details here. You will get the presentation anyhow. Uh, we have four instruments that come from the US, and uh, all the other instruments are coming from uh, Europe. And uh, some of these instruments, or the flight spares, have been used for Mars Express. And two of the flight spares, or part of it, are flying on dawn. Here is uh, an image of the spacecraft up there when it was on the shaker uh, for the uh, vibration tests. Below it is in the uh, space chamber for, to, for the thermal test in, uh, in Aztec in the huge solar simulator. And uh, here, just to show you how impressive it is, these are the solar rays. One side, you see one of the engineers down here. It's really impressive, and it was very impressive when they uh, had uh, performed the deployment test in our test facility, you know, when the whole thing, all of a sudden the wings just uh, go out. Was, uh, and this was one of the key features that we could develop this uh, uh, solar arrays. This is, shows you the, uh, the camera with one of my colleagues there. Just Also, it's a very big camera. It's not one of these micro cameras there used to fly these days. This is the uh, dust mass spectrometer. Just to show you some of the instruments, we have an at atomic force microscope, which is really a mechanical wonder. Which, there you have the very the small targets where the dust from the comet is collected, and then it's uh, uh, studied so with, with a resolution of about 10 nanometers. So we get really surface morphology and the structure of the dust. Here, this is uh, one of the key instruments as well, this is the, for the composition of the, of the gas, which is really a very, very high-resolution instrument. So we have a double-focusing mass <coughs> spectrometer, we have a time-of-flight mass spectrometer, and we have a uh, sensor that uh, measures the gas density. And here is the lander for the nucleus. You know, we wanted to have a comet nucleus sample return. As we couldn't do it, uh, so the slogan we came up was, if we can't bring a sample of a comet to the laboratory on Earth, what we do, we bring the laboratory to the comet. That also is translated in a very sophisticated payload and was also translated that we wanted to put something onto the nucleus. And this is uh, a long story. We had uh, also, originally we had two lenders, one from, uh, from NASA together with the CNES. And uh, what survived in the end was one lander, and you see here, this is uh, artist conception, but the lander is basically how it's uh, built. It will be basically pushed out uh, from the orbiter, and then in free fall goes down on the nucleus. If you're interested, I have some uh, movies that show uh, how that uh, will work. And then it will land on the three legs. Now, as you design a mission to an asteroid, which is a low-gravity environment, a nucleus with its density of about 0.4 grams per cubic centimeter is even a lower density. So this is uh, not so easy to get something down that it doesn't bounce off. Uh, so we have designed these legs here. As soon as two legs touch down, there will be two harpoons uh, ejected into this to, to anchor the lander in the nucleus. And, uh, with, and then there are also some so you say ice screws in there that go as soon as it touches down, they just drill into the surface and so you say provide some uh, means to anchor uh, the lander on the surface. And then you, uh, then you can start some measurements and it's a sophisticated uh, payload on the lander as well. As you saw, it's about 100 kilograms and uh, it's... Uh, Basically, 30% of this 100 kilograms is payload mass. It's, it's really a lot. And uh, we have also mass spectrometers, and there we have isotope, high-resolution isotopic analysis for the light elements, because we want to study the isotopic composition of the water on the nucleus, also to study the question if a lot, which part or which percentage of the water 
the, the ocean water on Earth might have come from comets or impacts uh, have been delivered by impacts from comets. And then we, we have also, we will study the, the structure of the surface and we will have a, uh, a drill which is mounted on uh, the side here that will take a sample out of a subsurface about 50 centimeters, it depends how the surface roughness is and where we sit, if we sit on top of some of these uh, little hills. This is not my idea how a comet nucleus looks like. This is an artist's conception. I would have done it uh, differently and it, it looks like a, a guy who has been working in the coal mines because that looks like, uh, <laughs> looks like big pieces of uh, coal that came out. And then we'll take uh, the samples, put it into ovens, then they will be heated up. We have gas chromatography behind that and, uh, and uh, mass spectrometer. And then we can really make a very precise measurement of the composition. This is uh, just to give you a sketch how it's uh, looked like. The whole thing is covered by solar rays and you have these openings up there which are the openings for the imaging systems. There are actually six small cameras in there. Uh, you have this little harpoon that will go in and, and measure the uh, hardness of the surface, will penetrate in there and has, can also provide some uh, thermal gradient measurements. And we have the drill system that comes up and then feeds into the oven and uh, will then provide the material for the uh, mass spectrometers. And here in the legs, you see these little drills. As soon as it comes down, it, uh, they should penetrate into the surface. And this is uh, another artist's conception how it hopefully looks like at the end of 2014 when we have uh, deployed the lander onto the nucleus. And I can tell you this is one of the key elements of the mission, uh, not just that you land it, but uh, I think a lot of people they don't believe that you can do it the way we are doing it and this gives the drama to the mission when you kick a little lander out and then you hope it gets down to the surface. But that the spacecraft works so far that uh, we have demonstrated and I just show you to end with, with uh, a couple of uh, images that were taken during the cruise and this was uh, launch in March 2004. We had a commissioning uh, subdivided in three phases because uh, we were more or less interference now because Mars Express was launched before us. It should have been originally launched after us, but as we had a one-year launch delay, they came earlier. And we checked out all the instruments. And uh, this is one of the cameras. Uh, one of the cameras from the lander uh, took the backside image of the solar arrays. And you show, see it even with a small lander camera, you get great resolution. Uh, this was what we had been done doing the far in green. You know, we, we launched, we had the Earth flyby in March, then Mars flyby, Earth flyby, deep space maneuver, Earth flyby, and uh, the next deep space, really big deep space maneuver, which a uot of fuel burned, January 2011. 8th of June 2011, we put the spacecraft into hibernation. And uh, the next big milestone is the exit out of hibernation, 20th of January. Then we will have our rendezvous in, I put here in spring, it will be uh, basically June when we get there and uh, we hope to deploy the lander in November 2014 and uh, they are now going more to a distance of 3 AU because uh, they have a, a primary and secondary battery on board and they want to be sure that their battery is uh, uh, charged their nominal lifetime, they need to do the most crucial measurements, at least that they can say that they achieved 90% of their mission on the lander, is basically only three days. But you know, as a scientist and they build something, three days is not enough. They dream that, uh, and because they have the secondary batteries, that they can uh, live through most of the mission and that they can get uh, data over a couple of months after they have been deployed onto the nucleus. We go through perihelion in uh, August 15 and then uh, the nominal end of the mission is uh, 31st of December 2014. And I don't think that we will extend the mission much longer because we, uh, there is also a wish to do, so to say, excursions into the tail and that uh, requires a lot of fuel if, you, if they are done qui fairly quickly. Because most of the time we want to stay very close to the nucleus uh, in the beginning, we, we will stay in orbits around the nucleus 
and we will come as close as about uh, one to two kilometers. As soon as the comet gets active and we have looked into that, we might have to uh, choose a totally uh, different way to, to observe the surface and that this is flyovers over the nucleus. That means we start at a distance of about 100 kilometers and then uh, fly a more or less direct trajectory and uh, also coming very close and then go out again, turn and come back. And with, a, with an object that has hardly any gravity, you can do a lot of wonderful maneuvers. Uh, we are just starting to discuss that in detail, but this is a totally different concept. It's not like, an, you know, if you say we go in orbit around the nucleus, uh, we can also fly what we call butterfly orbits. You know, we, we take one arc, then thrust slightly and, and just stay in front of the nucleus and, and go back. We don't have to go really around the nucleus. And uh, there are a lot of possibilities, but it's also very complicated. And I don't want to go in details here. If you are interested, I can show it to you. We are doing uh, fine-tuning of these orbits right now to understand what really can be done. But it's, it's really fascinating what's, uh, what possibilities we have. But it's also very difficult because we don't know the environment uh, properly. And we now realized that uh, with the outgassing, you know, because the comet starts to become active, uh, that also the, the propagation of the orbits, uh, you know, picks up a lot of errors because uh, even the even with a spacecraft of one and a half uh, tons, uh, the steady outgassing of the comet is, is slightly influence your orbit. You know, that was the first uh, Earthwing by, so we took the navigation camera to make uh, some images from Earth and the Earth and the Moon. This is one of my uh, favorite uh, images. This was the uh, Rosetta at Mars, the flyby at Mars, a distance of 200 kilometers above the surface, and this was taken with one of the cameras from the lander. So it just, you know, it's like looking down from a plane on uh, an object. It's, it's really most impressive. Now, what is perhaps important for you is uh, the flyby at Steins, just uh, showing uh, what we measured there. And let's go to there. This is uh, with the optical navigation that we took images from far distance and with this one you can then narrow down the arrow ellipse at the target and uh, this really gave us uh, the confidence that we could fly by very close and do the measurements. But we also had to flip the spacecraft because we want to do measurements along the, the flyby trajectory before we thought we fly by and leave just look at the zone. But as we had also had to be careful with the, uh, with the thermal control we flipped the spacecraft and we could then also make uh, measurements looking back onto the asteroid. So you s this was not planned in the beginning, but as soon as you get confidence in your spacecraft and in your mission, you also do much more for the science. And, you know, if you want to observe an asteroid, you want to get it under the largest range of phase angle possible. And therefore, we have put that in. It was also a, a test for us to... Uh, to see what we do at Lutetia, which was our main target. So this should start the uh, film. And those who are very, <coughs> look at this, you know, it started down there somewhere in the in a corner. It was not uh, centered at the asteroid, and that was had some problem with our navigation. It came at the end, it then uh, in, in the closed loop, really centered onto the asteroid, but we started a little bit off. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it just shows that you, some, yeah, not really mistakes, but you see that uh, our navigation camera didn't really center on the asteroid. We, what, for us, is, this was a rehearsal, and uh, for then <coughs> the flyby at Lutetia. These are just some of the science results we got, you know, with the phase angle going from the camera going through this. We also got an excellent spectrum. And this just shows you how, in the end, how good it's centered. It, you can't do any science from this one. This is spectrum we got. But you see that in the slit, you had the, the asteroid always nicely at the same spot. After it came up in the, in the beginning, you see this was the misalign uh, misalignment. And then it came up. It uh, really just showed how excellent 
the spacecraft uh, kept its attitude. So we had from different, I don't go that because time is running. Then the, the real object uh, for us, the, the most important of the fly from the asteroid was Lutetia, a big asteroid more than 100 kilometers in diameter. And uh, so <coughs> that we, I just show you some of the images there. We really got really impressive uh, images here with all the cratering. We could see also regulars on the uh, asteroid surface. And you see that's the best resolution we got from uh, 3,500 kilometers. And uh, uh, that is what you get out when you use uh, all the instruments of th that were on. When you use the images plus the infrared mapping spectrometer, then you also can uh, define uh, regions of uh, different composition. And this is... Uh, that's then the science that you can apply. So this is really good. Then we also saw uh, boulders and we saw landslides in the crater here. And I think that's also important for you that you will get closer when you go to a, a, a human mission to an asteroid. But this is some of the information you need. Where is the regolith? Where are the boulders? Where can you land? And... Uh, you know, this was then an estimate taking remote sensing instruments. I just show you that I can't, you know, this was been done by experts, but uh, even from, from the images we, we got uh, and uh, using also some spectral information, they uh, can also try to estimate the thickness of the regolith just from the surface uh, uh, properties. And this uh, is my last slide. This just shows you uh, Lutetia from uh, different uh, observing angles. And this was basically also the end of the science from the cruise phase. Uh, what we did show and demonstrate with the Lutetia flyby, that our spacecraft was in good shape, capable of uh, operating uh, at the comet nucleus and uh, having all the features that you need to do great science. And we also, at that time, and I say eventually, and, uh, and I was, uh, for me, it was a great moment as well. We could also demonstrate that all our instruments uh, were working properly and nominally. You know, you always have a few hiccups on a mission. And sometimes if you have uh, a couple of years cruise time, teams also take their time to, to work on optimizing their instrument, optimize the operations. And we had a few... Uh, problems with the Osiris camera on the fine-tuning of the camera, how they would uh, observe, and they demonstrated at Lutetia uh, that all the systems are ready and work, and that they, we could put the spacecraft and the payload to bed, have it uh, take a rest for a long time, for 31 months, and then hope, hopefully they are fresh in 2014 to start what I regard as a real mission when we get close to the comet. I want to thank you for your attention, and I know that you have a stressy week and you still have to work hard, and, uh, but I hope I could show you a little bit what's behind such a mission, that you know, things are nice on paper, but sometimes reality is, uh, also brings you a lot of big challenges. Thanks a lot. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.